welcome to you. I'm Lauren. And this has been... Has it been? <laughs> Did it already happen? <laughs> oh, someone's waving at her. <laughs> this is the journey to transformation. Okay. <laughs> I'm just already wanting to skip to you the sure, end. Sure, yeah. <laughs> if you're recovering from the coronation this morning, <laughs> welcome everybody. <laughs> How's everybody doing with coronation fever? <laughs> I missed it. And I'll explain why I missed it in a For minute. For a very important reason. For a very important reason. But I'm actually curious to know what the coronation meal is, because we had a big conversation about moving away from coronation chicken, which was the previous monarchs. And I love coronation chicken, so... Yeah, I saw an anti anti protester that had a sign that said coronation chicken. Yes. Coronation king. No. (laughs) (laughs) So good. But I think I also read in our discussion about that, that he is a vegetarian or something. So I don't know. Coronation quiche, maybe. (laughs) I heard tell of quiche, but there was also a thing that said he doesn't eat brunch or lunch or what the, the uh, thing that produces the coronation thing. Yeah. I mean, the fact that nobody knows about it makes me feel like we're just going to keep rolling on with coronation chicken. Cause yeah. how do you beat that? It's so good. Yeah. Strange, but right. very good. In sandwiches and stuff. Oh, I love a coronation chicken sandwich. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I ever really got into it. My mom makes good coronation chicken sandwiches. So. Shout out to Debs. Yes, indeed. Sorry. And why did you miss it? I missed it because I was doing the 15 kilometer tough mutter what? Yeah. It's that- shat rain for hours and hours and hours. Wow. Start of the day. I got up and was like, oh, I'm feeling a bit anxious about this. And then it was just the, the skies opened up. Wow. And so Tough Mudder is like where you, you run over obstacles and stuff, right? So tell exactly. us about some of those obstacles. Exactly. So there was one obstacle where you had to run up a ramp. So think like Ninja Warrior, that show. Oh, like a steep one. Yeah. Gosh. So you have to run up a steep ramp. And what if you can't make it? Can you go around it? You can. <laughs> it's strongly discouraged. Yeah, yeah. Fair, fair. And they also put it at the very end. So like you're oh, already like power, pretty fatigued, yeah. but it feels really good when you get up there. But the problem yeah. is it had been raining for hours. So everything was slippery and muddy. Um, I had to render aid and care to somebody who'd slipped <laughs> and cracked their knee open. Yeah. Well, you know, first aid certified. Yeah, so, yeah. There uh, we go. You know, hire me. Just kidding. Don't hire me. I don't know. <laughs> Get a doctor. <laughs> so there were a few obstacles. There was one where um, you had to crawl, uh, like a military crawl under barbed wire. <gasps> barbed wire. Oh, wow. Did, yeah. you, did it scratch you? Not if you kept your ass down. <laughs> what if your ass is really big? What cares you mean? I said nothing. <laughs> what you probably would have had to do is like have somebody like pull you through it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I hadn't appreciated that there was like real risk to life Yeah, um, in the Tough Mudder. There was, there was real risk and it was really muddy and pe- people were doing wild things like sliding down things as opposed to just walking down because mm. it was really, really really muddy. And so there's a really steep hill. So instead of walking down, people were like using it as a kind of impromptu slip and slide. I looked at my watch and I was like, we're only 6K in. Like, I'm not really trying to live in this world. Like these are risks I'm not really willing to take. Yeah. And as I was walking down sort of very cautiously at the age of 40, walking down the side, somebody came and slid down. But then obviously in the process of that, cracked their head on the ground. Another person skid over a rock, a massive rock, and it went straight on their coccyx. It took it took him a while to get to get up. And his friends were like, are you OK? And he was like, I'm not going to really, really hurt. Wow. There was one obstacle called the Arctic Enema. 
Okay. Where you go down a chute, like a water slide, mm -hmm. um, into water that they've filled with ice cubes. <gasps> wow. And you have to swim like under it. But they've got people who are there who are like, okay, take a deep breath. Because obviously it's very cold and can shock your body and yes. people can get distressed very easily. Yes. Not me, of course. <laughs> it's fine. You have to like jump over stuff. There was one where it was a really tall wall and you had to like figure out how to get over the wall. And the wall was like at an angle. So it was angled towards you, almost like bouldering. Yeah. And then there was another one, which I really liked called the human pyramid. Do you know when they like in, I can't remember where it's at, but they form these massive towers of people. And you like get on their shoulders until there's like one child at the top. Oh, like a cheerleading pyramid. Yeah. But like in some places they're massive and yeah. like they have like yeah. whole festivals around this thing and they get as tall as like a building. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And so if you're doing it on your own, you have to ask people nicely. But people help each other. Yeah, like it was, yeah. you, you don't even, you kind of don't even have to ask. People are there sort of offering. So there was a oh, massive nice. wall and I helped somebody over the top. And then I was just standing there a bit by myself and somebody who was behind me was like, let me help you up. So you kind of just help people yeah. up. And if you're at the top, you kind of need to pull them up to, to sort of help. But the reason I liked this pyramid one thing is because there was a guy who was standing there. He'd helped a couple of people up. This guy was massive. He's probably about three times my size and very tall. And I was like, okay, well go on, come. And he was like, what? <laughs> I was like, no, like, come on, you're you will be fine. Like you will be fine. My skeleton is very strong. So as long as I'm relying on my skeleton, like we're going to be fine. Also, I'm fucking jacked, bro. Like <laughs> we'll be fine. And he was being really tentative. And I was like, you need to put your weight on or else it's not going to work. Like you're just yeah. going to have your dick in my face for longer than we need to do this. Like, can you just go? And so finally he like climbed up, realized that I'm fucking jacked. <laughs> and then was able to kind of like, I pushed him up with like by one foot, I kind of pushed him up so that he then was standing on my head. And then he was able to reach somebody who was holding, who was like reaching their arms down from the top and pulled him up. Wow, cool. So stuff like that. It was very cool. It was very like as somebody who hates interacting with other people, it was a good exercise for me and like having to rely on other people and needing to there was there was one person who was like it was not welcomed help. So I was like climbing up something and I was having a perfectly fine time doing it. But then all of a sudden I felt from behind me like this hand grab my leg and like my knee and kind of like throw me up and I was like this was I did, this was unsolicited support and in the most awkward way so yeah um but I did I was thinking about um Caroline Criado Perez I was thinking a lot of these things are kind of out of my just out of my reach Ooh. so for example there was a there was an obstacle where you have to jump up and grab some bars swing and then hit a bell and I was like well one I can't reach these bars they're too tall and they're in a place where where if I jump, I'm probably not going to be able to reach it. And then if I swing, the bell is still really high. So I, I don't know how physics would allow my yeah. body to, to do this based on the size that I am. Ooh, um, so it's really designed for men. It is designed for people who are of a certain height. Okay. Who have arm spans that are of a certain length, right? So whoever that is. So it is not designed for anybody who's my size mm. or smaller. I'd say you'd have to be somebody who is probably a about five ten. Gosh, that is six tall, feet tall Yeah, to successfully do it, just because where they were. Yeah, so there are things like that, or like there are monkey bars, and the like. They were very girthy, like overly girthy. So I could barely wrap my hands around them. Oh, wow. Like you'd have to have a much bigger hand yeah. to be able to get your hand around it. But there was an exercise. There was an obstacle that I managed to do much better than 
some of the people who were much taller and had longer arm spans because it just relied on you holding on by your fingertips. Yeah. And so you had to just sort of shimmy across and hold on by your fingertips. And that, oh, that was fine. Yeah. yeah. They have strong fingertips. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe this, um, maybe this is a, a tweet at Tough Mudder. Who are your monkey bars designed for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because you, you could see like they were like, it was much harder to hold on to things when you're already soaking wet. These things are already wet and they're covered in mud. And if you don't have options for things that are a little bit shorter, it's so like that ramp I was telling you about, for yes. example, it had two sides to it. So it had one side that was really tall and one side that was a bit shorter. If you were a shorter person, you had shorter legs, for example, you yes. could still achieve, you could still go with that one, but they didn't size up things like that for yeah. everyone. Wow. I mean, it sounds like it's really just, yeah, designed for, for the average man. Yeah. And then anyone else has to accommodate themselves or find a way. Yeah. I mean, welcome to the world. Yeah, I know. <laughs> In a very like practical sense. Yeah. Here's Tough Mudder and how it plays out. But um, they have a one for smaller people, which is called the Little Mudder, which I think oh, you should do. Excuse me? <laughs> I mean, how little are we talking? Five foot two or under 10? <laughs> I mean, under 10, but I suspect they also mean people who maybe <laughs> can't reach the monkey bars <laughs> clearly <laughs> um all right let's consider that so yeah so just a thought just a thought um nice so yeah it was really good it's huge congratulations i think it's thank such an you. achievement Yay. thank you very much thank you very much yeah it was cool i was going to say one thing i wanted to flag to you actually and i haven't told you this yet so oh, gosh. Gosh. um no i have i told you i'm going to puppy yoga Yes. Which is like, I'm so excited about, um, but I don't know what you're going to think of this. So the puppies are German Shepherd puppies. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's going to be just running around while we're trying to Where do it. Where is it? It's an angel. <laughs> I had a, a German Shepherd for over a decade called Charlie and she accompanied me lovingly and loyally across many continents. Very well-traveled dog. Oh. So for puppy yoga, it's like an hour and you get like mixed yoga and playtime with the puppies. It's not the same group of puppies every time and it's just for like their social socialization, essentially. Yeah, and so they send you an invitation like the day of to tell you what puppies it's going to be. And then at the end, like when you're doing your shavasana, you're lying down, they put a puppy on your stomach and you like cuddle <laughs> and lie with them. <laughs> excited <laughs> that's amazing that's today yeah today oh, um but I'm like really excited for you yeah it's something i always wanted to do i remember coming back from afghanistan or places i'm working the one thing i always wanted to do as a point of like resettling myself or like feeling you know getting my mental health back in order was just go and hang out with a bunch of puppies yeah. and i always wanted to do that but i just never found like who's got a group of puppies i can hang out with you know yeah. it wasn't something that was like readily available but puppy yoga seems to be sort of answering that for me i hate you <laughs> i'm so excited um but yeah so that's what's happening but like it's every weekend and they release tickets in the week i only want the german shepherd so like yeah if it was like a room full of pomeranians i think i'd yeah so that's the thing you don't know until they send you the invitation it just happened to be that way can you cancel it no way <laughs> Can I sign up? And if it's a dog I'm not interested in, will you just go on my place? Yeah, of course. Okay, <laughs> Was it expensive? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, like... It was 35 pounds, okay. which I think like for one yoga class is kind of expensive, but with the addition of puppies. It's a half yoga class. Yeah. You're not going to do a lot of yoga. Yeah, exactly. So you're just going to hang out with the puppies really. Yeah. So I make them back with one in my back pocket. Let's see. Okay, good. I'm very excited for you to do puppy yoga. Yeah. 
Yeah. So somehow we're segueing from Tough Mudder, German Shepherd Puppies to the World Bank. Maybe the World Bank could do with, uh, maybe AJ could do with some German Shepherd Puppies. Who? The, the new head of the World Bank. Is that his name? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yes, maybe they do need some puppies. Maybe that is what actually would make the World Bank more... Human? Yeah. Sensitive? <laughs> Empathetic? <laughs> Yeah, so we're talking about the World Bank. Why? Um, well, because we've got some new leadership recently. What's his name? AJ. <laughs> <laughs> AJ Banger. Okay, great. And so with that new leadership, we thought we'd discuss a little bit what that might mean for the World Bank, where it's come from, the power behind it. As you know, we like to talk about big institutions and what they're doing and not doing. So buckle up, because this is going to be a hilarious episode. <laughs> And also, um, I think a lot of our work revolves around working in, on, or around fragile and conflict-affected settings. And the World Bank has taken some leadership in that over the past couple of years. Yeah, taken some leadership, yeah. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> that is accurate. They have done some things. <laughs> so, yeah, we thought we'd talk a little bit about the World Bank. Um, and I will admit, like, the World Bank for me was an institution that I dreamed of working for for a really long time. Nerd. About eight years of my life, I was obsessed with wanting to work with the World Bank. So they have this scheme, young, young... <laughs> Young, young professionals. Scheme. Dumb and broke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they were like, you, it's you. You're young, dumb and broke. <laughs> no, no. They have a young professional scheme. So you have to be aged between like 24 and 32 or something. You apply and, you, you know, they have like a question that you have to complete. A and, single question. Well, it's like, you know, there's like a ton of application stuff. Sure. And then a single question. I applied like four or five years in a row. And there's one time where my question got me through to the next couple of stages or my answer. And it was about data, obviously. Mm. <laughs> if you know me, I could talk about the data and about how the World Bank needed to do something about its data anyway. But I never got past the stage where they looked at your academic history because they place so much emphasis on you being like really academic and really and, and having amazing academic achievements. And I think I was about like 28, 27 when this happened. And it's like, you know, we want to know references from your people at university, but like, I didn't know me. I was like a number in a room. Like I had someone who looked at my dissertation, but that was it. So I never got past that stage because my academic, you know, I'm a 2.1 woman, not a first. <laughs> so you're still important. <laughs> you still, my, you still have some value. Some, but no, my point is like, they, they place so much emphasis on that. It's still to this day in the program, I, you know, a hugely exclusionary factor in people being able to work for the World Bank. But arguably they don't place as much, like if, if it was that critical a point, it would be the first thing you did, right? It sounds like it comes at subsequent stages. Wouldn't that be the first stage if it was like a disqualifying point? Yes, you're right. But there's, I think there was like six stages and that stage was always like the second or third stage. I never got to the point where you had like a group interview and you like came together and like, you know, did a scenario or something like that. But my point is that if it was that important, why is it even the second one? Yeah, yeah. The World Bank was always someone I wanted to work for. Maybe you still do a little bit. Really? Um, <laughs> they have a very interesting independent evaluation group and like department. I did and still do have admiration for and some of the evaluation advisors who work in that group, um, in addition to the, some of the innovation that they do around evaluation. Interesting. Okay. So, well, uh, we are hiring for a new co-director at JRNY <laughs> Consulting. So, <laughs> hey, you know, you work with me, right? Yes. It's a bit offensive that you're talking about other jobs. <laughs> 
I'm not saying I would do it. Mm. I'm just laying out the context of like, I really wanted to work for them. I have a lot of admiration for their independent evaluation group. Maybe you're cheating on our work. I'm not cheating. You're a slut. Um, whatever. You're a work slut. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> Got your eyes on other jobs. That is definitely not true. Rude. So I wanted to talk a little bit about like the World Bank and how it's evolved like into what it focuses on like fragile and conflict and violence. The World Bank was established in 1944. Same age as me. Whoa. <laughs> and which actually I was really like, wow, okay. I, I suppose I hadn't quite appreciated how old an institution it is. Um, old, dusty, fuddy duddies. What does fuddy duddies mean? You're a fuddy duddy. Expand. Mm, this is just a vibe. <laughs> Whatever. A fuddy-duddy. A person who is old-fashioned, very cautious, or fussy. Oh my God, get out. <laughs> <laughs> Informal. Derogatory. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry for the workplace harassment. I didn't see that in the Oxfam language guide. You have to change it from fuddy-duddy to one who duds with fuds. <laughs> That doesn't mean anything. That's you. <laughs> All those people. Um, nineteen forty-four, old as fuck. Yeah, and it used to do like structural adjustment programs. So, so structural adjustment programs were like in the eighties and nineties, and they were imposed on developing countries as a condition for financial assistance. So they focused on market liberalisation, privatisation, and fiscal austerity. Critics often said that this led to more poverty and social unrest. The World Bank was kind of, I think, in that era where, if you remember the Millennium Development Villages, do you remember those? Yeah. Um, I think it was Jeffrey Sachs who was part of that and Bill Gates. Yeah, I mean, Bill, we're bros. Um, so kind of around that era where like there was a lot of like development programs imposed on people and a lot of like conditions around getting <laughs> finances if they reach certain kind of economic achievements. Yeah. So more recently, the World Bank pivoted to looking at fragile conflict and violent situations and has its own strategy. But are they still doing like structural, because like, I remember structural adjustment programs were coming under a lot of heat because this whole concept of like conditionality, as you said before, was actually really fucking places up. Yes. And so I do remember there being lots of protests around specific, more specifically the IMF okay. for its conditionality programs Yeah, because they were actually destroying economies. There was a book I read ages ago that was basically about like institutionalization within the IMF. And oh. the whole thing was like- What is the IMF temple? International Monetary Fund. Thank you. And the whole premise of the book was how market liberalization was institutionalized within the International Monetary Fund by virtue of how they hired people. Oh, wow. And so like if they had hired like six more people who had opposing views, maybe they would have like a completely different, like their whole structure would be different, which is the same argument for like everything. Yeah. Yeah. But with something with like such global, long-term, substantive, yeah. world-changing significance, it didn't seem to matter. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Uh, what, how small a number of people could pivot the whole thing actually. What's your tipping point? Ask Malcolm. Yeah, exactly. Ask your bro, Mr. Gladwell. <laughs> But I think it speaks a lot to like how these institutions had so much power when it comes to the word, like, you know, structural adjustment, mm. like this organization can come in and say, you know, we'll give you this money if you structurally adjust in, in this way. It's a lot of so much power. It's not dissimilar to what we do, to be 
Yeah, yeah, go on. We just don't attach money to it. We're like, look, here's where you're super fucked. Yeah. Fix this thing and everyone will be happy, happy, happy. (laughs) Right? We just don't attach monetary benefit to it, though we do make a link between like, in some cases when we're making recommendations and we're connecting it to financing that's available, we are to some extent bridging the gap between if you want to improve this program in terms of gender transformation, here are some donors who think that shit's sexy, Yeah, but you have to do these things first before they think you're hot. Yeah. No, that's fair. Maybe on a, um, a smaller scale. <laughs> what do you mean smaller scale? <laughs> There's so, some structural adjustments I'd like to make. <laughs> I, I can't hate the concept. I just don't think it was very well executed. Good idea, bad execution. And also maybe a failure of, of like the lessons from it. People that I've spoken to in the World Bank acknowledge that, you know, its own internal mechanisms of understanding what's worked and what's not worked and the negative impact have only really started in the past five years. And I've seen where they've gone back and done like meta evaluations of many projects that have been done in particular countries. I'd Um, be hesitant to say that they're only kind of just learning and reflecting in the last five years. It feels like quite a big statement. I suspect that there probably are institutional constraints as there are with every institution that mean that it's much harder for them to advance. Like their governance structure, the decision-making structure is very, very different. Yeah, And I think that's why there's a lot of conflict because like the things, you know, structural adjustment programs. I don't know. I've always thought they were a bit strange because the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, historically called the Bretton Woods Institution because they were American inventions. They're both led by just the World Bank has to have an, an American president. The IMF. Oh yeah, the IMF can have. Have a European. I think because of like the centralization of decision-making on superpowers. I can see why it gives people a really salty feeling because like some of the things that are being imposed in terms of structural adjustments are inventions of the West or creations or knock-on effects of the West. Yeah. I don't know. They feel like they kind of move into the territory of like infringing on state sovereignty. Yeah. I think that's a great, a great reflection, especially because like, you know, the World Bank was often going in and, and like working mainly with the state actors as kind of like an advisory piece and still is. So that relationship and the World Bank's relationship to the, the state, I think, has come up with a lot of criticism. I was on a technical working group with a World Bank representative oh, and the government. Yeah. I, so I was a representative of like the civil society cluster. Yeah. It was very intense. Really? It was really intense because they were talking and they were effectively talking about like infrastructure in X country. The World Bank rep was dick. This is why I'm not going to tell you what country it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was really, really hard because they were talking about massive stuff. And there was like a whole political dimension because there was the influence, Chinese influence. You wouldn't be able to narrow that down just by me saying Chinese influence. There's a Chinese influence on the infrastructure programs that were being developed. And there was a World Bank trying to basically say, look, the, this is the approach we want you to take. This is how we want to do it. If you want roads, this is how roads are happening. And then you had me just going like, but you're, you're flooding a whole town to build a road. Wow. <laughs> it's really very uncomfortable dynamic. That is really uncomfortable. Because they're like, we're talking about, they were talking about hundreds of millions and I was upset about yeah, yeah. You know, and the I think, human aspect of that, yeah. which didn't seem to. I mean, from what you're saying, and I don't know how many years ago this was, the World Bank didn't have that much of a relationship with civil society organizations potentially. Yeah. And I think that's one criticism of it. Still don't. Well. Because it dicks. I mean, I think, and that's hugely one of its criticisms is it's like, you know, state-led, state advisory. But, you know, as we know in many countries, state intention isn't necessarily the same intention for civil society organizations sure. or people who live there. So, yeah. And I worked on a World Bank project in a country, in a, but it was an ethnographic project. 
and the World Bank had decided, I think at this point that, you know, actually we recognize that there are people living in these places. Um, So it wanted to understand indigenous groups and different ethnic groups in this country and map out their cultural social norms to understand what resilience factors were in place if the state actually decided to what's the word i don't know um decided to they were at risk of being targeted by the government yeah or being or having to like move out of their land or like be pushed from their like homeland for example so i as one of the researchers went to some of these like just incredibly remote places that no one has ever really been or at least back then mm. and and learned about these indigenous groups and, and different ethnic groups it was phenomenal and we even had to like map, for you for me, it's <laughs> for me very extractive on many many levels and what was really disappointing about the whole thing like the, this whole guide was pulled together and it was like looking at different artifacts everything it was amazing a week after or just before it was going to be published or the government completely changed the state lines and everything and like changed completely changed the whole geographic structure of its of the country which meant the report was immediately out of date Oops. um and then it never it never got published like it never went anywhere oh dear how, how sad is that you still have um, that on a hard drive don't you probably yeah okay <laughs> But anyway, it was kind of for me representative of like the scale of the World Bank and what it was trying to achieve. Yeah. But then got lost. Wild. Yeah, wild. So um, look for that leaked report on www.jaronwaypodcast.com. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> <laughs> if only. It's only like well out of date now. Social norms and customs are not are never out of date. True, true, true. Uh, th- there will be some... There will be some factors maybe, but you're right, like the the groups themselves, yeah. So then the World Bank moved or is moving towards working on fragile conflict and violence affected state. I have a question because you're describing this as like a new thing, but like there is an intersection of like countries that are yeah. living in extreme poverty, which also suffer from those same things. So I'm confused why it sounds like this is a new thing when like they've always been doing shit like this. Like this is what we've been describing before. Yeah, you're right. It's not a new thing in its instrumental delivery, but I suppose the strategy is is what was somewhat new a few years ago. Okay. Like, so they produced a strategy that said, you know, this is how we're going to do it, or this is how we want to be able to focus on this. It's sort of the same way that the sector just decided that conflict sensitivity was a thing, or like, you know, even some of our clients have their own kind of working in fragile conflict affected state strategies or whatever, that this is now the thing. And they've kind of explicitly said, you know, this is how it's done rather than maybe acknowledging that, well, what did it look like before? And is it that it was there, but just not labeled and so on and so on? It just seems weird that they've only now, like, you know, founded in 1944, primarily working to build financial institutions in impoverished countries. Whether that's what they should be doing or not is not what I'm talking about. But it seems weird that they've only now come up with a strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Focus. I mean, they, they will have probably had other strategies, right? Mm. For poverty reduction or development stuff. But what I mean is like the subject is the yeah. same. Yeah. So why do you only now have a strategy when the subject is the same? It makes me feel a little bit like some of the conversations we've had around certain types of terminology that mm. just sort of pop up. Yeah. As opposed to the fact that they've been doing this the whole time because basically their whole thing is kind of like about a group of countries which exist at the at the intersection of all of these things like fragility, violence, poverty and conflict a lot of the times overlap and are reinforced by each other. 
So they've been doing this stuff for a while, but is it because they needed to have like a FCV strategy for 2023? It just feels a little bit, I guess I'm just confused about what what's new when yeah. I thought they were doing this the whole time. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. And I think I have an absence of knowledge about what their considerations were for conflict in their past strategies, which it may have been there, um, or how to deal with if there's a conflict that's causing poverty or is the root cause of poverty or a contributing factor. And there was a point in time, if you remember, six, seven years ago, maybe a bit longer, where suddenly everyone was like, oh, we've kind of, and I'm saying this in a really superficial way, oh, we've kind of all dealt with the low hanging fruit. What now? Oh, it's all the country still in conflict. And actually now we're realizing that there is like a perpetuating cycle of conflict and people are stuck in protracted crisis. There was like a, almost like a switch that people said, oh, wait, this, this is the, the bit that's not changing. We need to now find a different strategy to do and address that. All the donors said, yeah, okay, yes, that, that seems like great. Let's pour our funding into conflict affected contexts. And then, so for me, the World Bank, putting this out there is a bit like tipping into that space as the donor. But anyway, I sorry, I said that in a very, very superficial way. So please forgive me listeners, but you get what I mean. <laughs> and according to the World Bank in 2020, more than two thirds of the world's extreme poor are expected to live in fragile and conflict affected states by 2030. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, th- thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> Indeed. As we know from some of our work, the World Bank has had this fragility index and they've had that since 2005, in fact. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, before they brought out this strategy and the fragility index is a tool that's used to identify countries and regions most in need of support for targeting resources effectively. And it's got this kind of low, medium or high risk categorization built on a set of quantitative indicators based on where a country is at and is brought out annually. So countries can shift across that spectrum. I'd be interested to know how often a country moves from like low to medium, medium to high and vice versa, and how often they stay there. Because what we know from a durable peace perspective is that it takes approximately one full generation without any conflict for you to be in a state of durable peace. Where's that fact from? I don't know. U.S. Institute of Peace. I learned it on that course. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've also read that possibly in a World Bank <laughs> But I'm just curious because that is, yes, the, the line. Yeah. Well, I think that is the practical definition of durable peace. But that is how long on average it takes for one to see mm. the indications of durable peace. Right. So like the second there's an outbreak of violence again, it's almost like you go back to zero. Yeah. And I think this is where these kinds of indexes or what's the plural for index? Indices. <laughs> Sorry, but can we go back one second? Yeah. What's the plural? <laughs> what's the plural? Are you okay? What's the plural for index? You've had too much cheese. <laughs> indices. Indices. So this is the kind of problem I think with these indices is that in a snapshot moment, it doesn't tell you a lot. It's the accumulation of it over a long period sure. of time that tells you a lot. The problem is if you take that index, you look at it, you know, this year and say, oh, well, you know, one country's here, one country's here. So what? You know, and it doesn't really tell you the picture of what we know happens with fragility. Sure. I mean, that database probably does exist, but it's, yeah. it's not when we access loads or some some of them that they do have the kind of signals of what we would look at in the space like this. Like I think the ACLED database kind of does that, but that fucking website is so hard to understand. Yeah, it changed. I don't know what happened. I should probably write to them because I used to use that a lot. Hey, if you work for ACLED, 
Fix your fucking website. Can you come on the show? (laughs) I'd like to talk to you. Fix your shit first and then you can come on here. We don't want any mediocre hoes on this show. (laughs) Stop it. Um, So the FCV, yeah, or the Fragility Index, sorry, uses a combination of data sources, including the World Bank's own governance indicators. (laughs) So I have a little question about using your own data to then pull another index. Anyway. But people cite themselves, right? Like people often cite their own work. But then if there's something wrong with that, it's reinforced in another index but anyway but there could be something wrong with the other ones definitely so well the other one is the un's human development index whoops and the Uppsala Conflict Data Program. Sexy. I don't know this program. Um, but they're then weighted and, and pulled together to create create the composite score. The other thing about this index is that c- it can stigmatize people if they are like classified in it. Um, not stigmatize people, but countries. Sure. If they're sort of on it, um, you know, it might be treated a certain way or whatever. That's the World Bank Fragility. They're committed to spending $20 billion in grants and loans over the next five years on this area. The core of their approach is the Pathways for Peace document, which was circulated back in 2019, maybe 2018. And it encompasses like how they envisage getting to the durable peace um, as the end goal. Is that their fragility, conflict and violence strategy is the pathways to peace? No, it's not a strategy. No. It's a report that came out that talked about and informed their strategy. So in the strategy, which is from 2020 to 2025, they envisage operationalizing what they've called 23 measures to strengthen the World Bank's effectiveness in fragile conflict and violent settings. It will be implemented across four areas, policies, programming, partners, partnerships and personnel with flexibility and adaptation to individual country contexts. And then they've got kind of these 23 different measures that they're taking. So I could like pick out a few under policies, processes and practices. They want to ensure the World Bank group is fit for purpose. So also (laughs) making sure that it's actually okay to do this work. It's almost like they brought out the strategy before they were ready in a way. I don't know. Some of these I just find very general. Um, They want to do security and related issues. So they will update and provide clarified parameters for the bank's engagement with military and security. Actors. That does feel useful. Um, yeah. And I think that that is like perhaps a bit of a gray area, especially if you're like really focused on working with the state. I guess that emerges at a time when the state is in itself a gray area. Yes. Well, yes. I'm thinking of a hunter. Yeah, exactly. What do you do in those contexts? With the Taliban. Yeah. I actually don't know how the World Bank is working with the Taliban. That's interesting. If you are with the Taliban, let us know. Stop it. Jay- maybe it's worth saying actually they do have some sections in their strategy about how to broader engagement with civil society just reflecting on what you said before about your personal experiences of maybe civil society not being so heard and they do acknowledge that it should play a more critical role in addressing the root causes of fragility and engaging with them again more systematically but like what that actually looks like you know it says annual and spring meetings like you know TBD really I find it interesting that they're articulating stuff around root causes because that means that there's been an evolution since the last time we interviewed people at the World Bank. No, this was before that. This was released in 2020. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So it might just be that like that says it, but that actually hasn't materialized in practice yet. Okay. Because anyone can write that you're addressing root causes. Sure. Then you just question the whole of this strategy. <laughs> so in two years, they've not evolved in terms of 
the strategy itself. In terms of the strategy itself. Yeah. And, and I think. Oh, sad for you. You got, you're welcome, World Bank. We just gave you a tiny little micro evaluation. But I think that's a lot it. Like it's written there. They know what they wanted to do, but if they still don't know if they're fit for purpose, they're already one step behind actually implementing the strategy. Um, so maybe now we should just like briefly mention that, you know, it has got this new president and, and in a lot of cases, people get a bit hopeful. New president, new change, new exciting things. Who's like celebrating whenever, this? Whenever there's a new leader, there's like often a, that person wants to put their stamp on, you know, what are they going to achieve in their tenure, right? Sure. So, you know, what is it going to be? AJ Banger came from MasterCard. A World Bank, some might say. They might be, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they might be good with the money. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> At a minimum, if you're working for MasterCard, <laughs> I would hope that you have some financial literacy. <laughs> um, anyway, what I didn't realize is, as you kind of mentioned before, the United States is like the largest shareholder in the World Bank and therefore has quite a lot of influence over who the president can be. There is this thing called the Gentleman's Agreement, which is an informal arrangement that the World Bank president will be American and the IMF or the International Monetary Fund Managing Director is European. And this is kind of how old data this institution is, that there's something called a Gentleman's Agreement that still exists. But anyway, I didn't didn't know that or realise that. And I don't know if the World Bank has ever had a a woman president actually in a lot of ways critics said that that kind of perpetuated the interests of the united states and other shareholders in terms of what the world bank is focused on do you want to play a little trivia yeah go for it okay in 2021 what was aj banga's net worth in dollars um 10 million dollars give you another chance higher or lower i'll give you another chance 25 million. 206 million. Oh my gosh. Stupid money. This is stupid money. And how many stocks in MasterCard do you think? What's the value of his MasterCard stocks as of April 1st, 2023? 350 million. Okay. Well, now you're just being silly. Oh, but- <laughs> <laughs> 113 million dollars. Wow. Okay. So, so this person is used to dealing with a lot of money then. I imagine, <laughs> I imagine AJ has an accountant. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair. Um, but many. I also didn't realize that he was the person who brought KFC and Pizza Hut to India. No. Yeah. That's an unknown Thanks, thing. AJ. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I don't know why I'm thanking you. I don't know if people in India like that. Oh, they yeah. happy for yeah. that? These aren't, these aren't our greatest exports. These mm-hmm. aren't our, our greatest American exports. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Now, Taco how Bell. Does, how's that going to play out? Taco Bell would have been a real coup for uh, AJ, but, you know, maybe he's just not good enough. Does that mean that the people at the World Bank get like KFC lunch and stuff? Free KFC. <laughs> <laughs> you think so? I don't know. Okay, I've just Googled World Bank cafeteria menu. No way. So there's 10,000 employees, the World Bank wow. in DC. That's huge. Yeah. Here's a look at what's on the menu. I see some like salady looking things. Okay. This looks like spinach and almonds. That looks quite nice actually. Yeah, and a kind of fruit salad. I could eat that. Frittata looking things. Hey, they look nice. These are fancy. I mean, it's the World Bank. Did you think it would just be KFC? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so we're looking at like white fancy plates with like individual frittata things on it. Yeah, Yeah. it looks nice. Okay, so it sounds like they've got a wide variety of things to keep them going and nourished as they continue to build the fragility index. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I mean, why they haven't gotten more done when somebody brings you your fucking lunch? Like, I make my lunch. Yeah. I could be using that time to solve root causes of conflict. Yeah. 
if I had that time back, probably yeah. I'd be more productive. So yeah. the fact that they have this delicious food appears to be well-balanced, nourishing food. They're totally set up for success and they're just squandering it. Yeah, well, they're set up to, for success and to challenge climate change and everything, really. Yeah, I think like climate change and environment is one of the areas that people are hoping the World Bank will focus more on. A bit contentious because some of the conversations around conditionality, if I'm remembering this correctly, were about countries transitioning to renewables as opposed to like burning dirty fossil fuels to which countries said, well, you guys did it in the West and this is how you had your industrial revolution. And you actually were the main polluters. And now what's good for the goose should be good for the gander, if Uh, that phrasing makes any sense. Yeah. And I think that is a really, I mean, I would like to be a fly on the wall when those conversations happen, because like there's really strong arguments for both sides of that coin. In in the climate conversation, conversation, it doesn't really make sense for countries to replicate the things that the West did during their industrial booms Mm. because it was inefficient and dirty technology. There's an opportunity to build off of those, leverage the knowledge that was accumulated and go further. Any innovation that happens in in any sector, really, you don't start from, you don't do what somebody else did, copy that. You take lessons from that and you build from that. So you, it's this whole, like the, the phrase standing on the shoulders of giants. Like I understand why like states as a whole feel that frustration because you effectively have somebody who's, who's saying like, do as I say, not as I did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm full of phrasing today. You're leapfrogging what we did in the States, for example, by well, a couple hundred years. And and ultimately, hopefully, um, giving your citizens a chance of a better quality of life. Yeah. I mean, you're that, future that proofing. Should, right. And and that should ultimately be your, your goal. I had a massive argument with Thames Water the other day um, because, and maybe the World Bank can go lobby them because I have a leak in my flat, not in my flat, but outside my flat mm-hmm. in the street. And it's like connected to my flat, but there are 90 liters of water leaking every hour. Whoa. So that's like a bath and a bit more every hour, just leaking underground somewhere. And I was like, well, that I said to the person, this is a lot like what the actual fuck. And they're like, yeah, so we can get someone out on the 13th of June. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Mm. You're going to let 90 litres of water an hour just leak underground for the next month. I literally hit the roof. I was like, and she was like, yeah, I'm I'm sorry. And I was like, don't say sorry to me. Say sorry to the fucking planet and everyone who doesn't have any water. Yeah. And that person just left and went dirty hippie. (laughs) And they were like, yeah, we don't have enough people. So buy some people. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I was just kind of taken aback by it. Yeah. So someone needs to lobby water. the Thames Water, possibly the World Bank, if they're going to really like step up their climate change sure. issues. <laughs> sure. I can imagine that the World Bank listening to this right now is going, do you know what? We really need to fix this leak at Lauren Burroughs' <laughs> flats. <laughs> but anyway, it made me think, so this is quite a normal thing and it happens everywhere. Like, where does also this water go underground? Like, it just exists. Yeah. I don't know. It just seeps underground. <laughs> there are lakes underneath London. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I hope there's not a sinkhole below you. Yeah, that'd be a bit scary. Just that this water is slowly eroding at the foundations of the ground beneath you. That's really scary. I hope not. I'm sure you'll be fine. <laughs> it's only 90 liters an hour. <laughs> so I think, you know, what we've discussed is like the World Bank is an organization that needs to change. It's the same as the conversation that we were having before about the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. Like 
decision makers, standard creators, trendsetters, they're influencers. <laughs> influencers in the humanitarian world. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they're like their little TikTok celebs, right? Yeah. So I think that it does matter where they're shifting their attention and their priorities. But I'm still unclear about the extent to which this is like a new thing or whether it's just like where they're just jumping off of new language. And if it's just jumping off of new language and they're just adopting new jargon, then it still worries me that they're, you know, ask. I mean, I do think you should always ask yourself if you're fit for purpose. I think that's an important reflection. I don't mean to be like flippant or glib about that. But I do think... I don't know. It just worries me. If you've been doing it this long, maybe it requires a completely different reconceptualization of your aims, objective, mission, goals. And one of the things that at least we know from some pockets of the World Bank is like the strategy that they developed in 2020 hasn't taken hold internally. So if it's not taking hold internally, and how long is the strategy for to 2025? Yeah, it's so two years from now. So as of last year, their their people or some of their people weren't totally clear on whether or not it was possible for the World Bank to challenge norms and address root causes. And I think like this is the fit for purpose question and what we know internally and a very short strategy, really five years, um, all kind of signal that the World Bank is just an impossible giant that's going to take decades to change. And by the time it gets there, we'll all be 50 years beyond. You know, it was an organization that was designed to be in, in, in an older world, right? Yeah, it's going to take the World Bank a lot um, longer to get where it needs to be. People that we've met and talked to said it's never going to decolonize. It's just going to continue to be what it is. So, I mean, can it decolonize though? Like, is it one? Is that its ambition? And two, is that its structure? Yeah, that's what's what's the utility of that? Yeah, obviously, I think it's important, but I also think like I don't know. I feel really conflicted because they're they're trying to stabilize whether rightly or wrongly countries that are in conflict, like countries that are in crisis, there inherently exists a need for support. Whether they should be dictating how that happens on a state level, I don't know. But I guess there's a question of like, if the state is incapable of overseeing the safety of its citizens through both a physical security and a fiscal security, then is there not a relevant use for some entity to come in and provide that support. Mm. I don't agree necessarily on conditionality as a broad statement, but I do think that it makes sense. It's like, you know, when I was young and when I was younger and I'd ask my mom for some allowance and she'd say, well, what are you going to do with it? Mm. Which is a relevant question. Like you can have this money if I know that what you're going to do with it is supportive of this, this and this. Now, is that paternalistic? Of course it is. But when you're talking about countries that are struggling to govern, then yeah, okay, that there is a space that exists for that. But there needs to be a recognition for the, how the West created those dynamics in the first place. So it's almost like balancing conditionality with reparations, taking a supportive role, but not a paternalistic role, but a role that recognizes the fact that the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and primarily Western countries are responsible for some of the ways in which the countries they're supporting are experiencing crisis and conflict. Yeah. Potentially through that supportive role, also being a connector with civil society. I think there's a, there's a really strong role for someone to like bring more unity to that. Just to bring it into like the layers of their decision-making. Like if you're going to have a fragility index or any kind of index, HGI, whatever, like 
I mean, is that, does that remain statically what it is? Do the indicators that are included in what makes up the fragility indicators, are they the same as they always should be? We looked at the kinds of data that come into these indexes or indices. Is that now the right data that determines what fragility is? Let's speak civil society and other people to determine what fragility looks like. If these indices are also going to continue to be like the core measurement. I also have questions about whether in our space, the World Bank is kind of obsolete. I don't have loads of conversations with people where they're like, yeah, what's the World Bank doing? Like this is sort of, I'm kind of contradicting what I said before about like the World Bank being standard bearers and decision makers. Cause like, I also think, I don't know, one, their logo is so fucking out of date. It's killing me. It looks like somebody made it with the Clippy. Do you remember Clippy? Yeah, yeah, on the word in the corner. <laughs> yeah, it looks like somebody made Can it with the you? help of Clippy. <laughs> um, I wonder what utility it has in the space, because like we're not really... In all of the projects that we've done, we've only had one where they asked us to talk to somebody at the World Bank. Yeah. Anyway, so. All right. Well, there are if you start with that, yeah. <laughs> let us know. We'll send you some granola. <laughs> yes, there are our reflections on the World Bank. Okay. I don't know what you can do with them. Yeah. Let us know how the World Bank is central or not to your life. <laughs> well. I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Indeed it is. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.